On this episode of Water Flying, we will find out if it is possible to fly across the United States on straight floats. You are listening to Water Flying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the water flying community. Climb aboard. We're about to start today's episode. Well, welcome back to Water Flying. I am so excited about this episode today for a couple of reasons. Uh, Not only do we have a great guest and topic, but it is also our first two-part podcast. So Dave Wellman is joining me on this episode, and we're going to establish and explore whether or not you can fly a straight float plane across the United States from the West Coast to the East Coast. Dave is a lifetime SPA member and one of our generous Captain Society members with the Seaplane Foundation. And I always enjoy seeing him and getting to speak with him, uh, my brother in adventure here. And uh, without further ado, I would like to welcome my good friend, Dave Wellman, to the Waterflying Podcast. Well, good morning, Steve. Thanks for having me. Um, this is a new thing for me, doing a podcast like this, but... Uh, I think it might be kind of fun. Looking forward to it. Let's get started. Gets you addicted. You might be coming back often. You know, you just have to keep having uh, major seaplane adventures for us to talk about. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So uh, a little background. Uh, so Dave, um, we're going to split this uh, podcast into two episodes uh, because there's so much to talk about. Dave had... Uh, the opportunity to try to go across the country with state uh, a straight flow plane. And we're going to explore about it because number one, we want to know a little bit about your background, Dave, on how you got into flying, what inspired you to fly seaplanes and, and then ultimately become an owner. Well, thanks, Steve. Yeah, I, I think it, it does go back to my childhood in Maine. And uh, I, I pick on my dad because dad would take us out to these, camps out in the middle of nowhere and log cabins and go fishing and bang around through the woods and everything. And, and we always went on float planes. And, um, so I, as a kid, I just thought that was magical. And, uh, so you always, always kind of kept that in the back of your mind. Um, of course, then you, you go to school and you, um, go away to go to work and life gets in the way and all of that, but always in the back of your mind is, you know, someday I'll get back to this flying thing. And uh, sure enough, uh, here we are. Well, that's awesome. I mean, it sounds like a great childhood, honestly. I wish I would have had a father that uh, took me around in a, a seaplane. But uh, uh, someone has yeah. to do it, right? Yeah, it's pretty fun. So we, we tease him that, that, you know, he got me started on this adventure. But, um, yeah, so um, – during my career, I was getting ready. My wife and I were going to move back from Oregon back to Maine. And uh, 
I said, oh, gosh, we better get with this flying thing. And so I, I took lessons and got my license uh, in 1988 out in Eugene, Oregon. And then when we moved back to Maine, I went, uh, gosh, I went straight to Rangeley uh, with Steve Bean in Rangeley and, and got my float rating in 1989. Wow. And I uh, said, okay, here we go. So that's that's when I bought, I bought my first float plane, a uh, Cessna 172 in in Naples, Maine, actually. Wow, that's awesome. So, uh, you know, a lot of people have the same issue that you and I have talked about before where life does get in the way and uh, it causes you to have to put things on hold for a little while. Um, but, you know, I, I have to stress, it's never too late to either start or to get back into it and quite honestly, life is too short and too valuable not to fly seaplanes. Uh, so I, I really commend you, uh, even when you have to take a break, uh, getting back into it. Yeah, so it, um, it, to, exactly to that point. And, um, but it's always the dream was always there. And then you get a chance to get started and you go, okay, here we go. And, uh, oh, boy, I'm glad I... Glad I didn't wait any longer because I'm having fun. <laughs> That's awesome. And you have, um, quite honestly, a, a non-typical seaplane uh, by a lot of standards. So, uh, And you have actually more than one of them. So the Cessna 172 is, is what you own, and you actually own both an Anfib and a straight float, right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, okay, full disclosure, yep. Um, I've joined the club. <laughs> You've got the disease. Owner. You've got the disease <laughs> yeah. and there's uh, no cure other than more money, more airplanes and more time to fly them. Yeah. Where's the time? <laughs> um, yeah. So that's, that's true. I, I, you know, of course, when you start taking lessons and so forth in this flying adventure, you, you start off on a 152 and then you you morph into a 172 and that's good and so you get you know you get used to the 172 and but always in the back of my mind I knew that I wanted to have a float plane and so you say okay well you know what what can you afford for a float plane and what kind of well what kind of plane can you afford and and then bigger still is what's your mission and everybody that I talk to when I'm looking at airplanes, I say, well, what's your mission? And um, the mission didn't really merit a, a 206 or a 185 or um, certainly all the high wing airplanes. Um, and kind of the mission bubbled up, you know, was it a Piper or is it a, is it a 172? So I don't know. I, I stuck with the 172. Yeah, and I have to say, so as the executive director of the organization, you know, you're constantly talking with seaplane pilots and having people ask you, you know, which seaplane should I buy? And quite often, the 172 in particular is, is kind of shamed, I hate to say it, by a lot of the the experienced float plane pilot owners, whatever. You know, they I think they always gravitate towards um, – a 185 or super cub or whatever. And, and again, they kind of in, unfortunately uh, they don't appreciate the 172 or its capabilities. 
And I think uh, it's kind of a sleeper in the seaplane world. I love the airplane because, number one, it really teaches you how to fly a seaplane because you don't have this tremendous excess of power or capabilities. Uh, but number two, it's also very affordable. Um, and, uh, you know, you and I have talked about this quite a bit. Uh, you know, it's it's not going to be a super heavy hauler or it's not going to be super fast. Uh, but as you mentioned, you know, pretty much everyone knows how to fly a Cessna. You know, they grow up flying a 152 or a 172. So pretty much everyone knows how to fly one. And because they're so prolific, mechanics know how to work on them. Um, insurance companies are not afraid of them. Um, by seaplane standards, seaplane the the insurance rates are you know affordable again by seaplane standards, and they're still produced today, and parts are readily available. So, I actually like it. I I I wouldn't hesitate to own a, a one seventy two. Well, you're right. And, and that was key in, in the selection is what, what was the mission? And the mission either on wheels or on floats was no no grand sort of scheme that I was going to haul, you know, people around and go places. But um, as I found out, I mean, you can either on wheels or on floats, I can go camping with it. Um, I'm not taking four people. You're right. Um, it takes a while to get there. Yep. You're right. <laughs> um, but it's, um, it's a, a reasonably cost effective sort of way to go have fun. And, uh, I, yes, I did use it for work, um, a little bit, but, um, mostly it's, um, it's for my recreation. Well, let's get down to the topic at hand. So our title today, uh, of this podcast is can you fly a straight float uh, aircraft across the United States. Um, and we're talking about coast to coast, West coast to East coast in this, uh, this uh, particular conversation. And, you know, what, what inspired you or made you think of, of actually taking on such a, uh, gr we'll say a grand adventure or an ambitious adventure. So I say, well, <laughs> the, 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 Adventure, the ambitious part of it was I, I wanted to, okay, so my plane is in Oregon and it, it's on wheels and at the, you know, at that time. And the, the objective was to fly my float plane to the Greenville International Seaplane Fly-In. Well, that sounds like and, a cool uh, idea. <laughs> Yeah, why not? You know, so I wanted I wanted to arrive at the seaplane flying in my plane. There you go. And uh, so that that was the objective. Wow! But, but it took a little planning. It took some planning to get this thing figured out. Yeah, and and you literally, it seems like uh, from what we've been talking about, I mean, the the real traction for this kind of started when you were out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, somewhat. Well, it, it did, yes. And um, to, I'm, I'm lucky. Uh, we, we, get to, we get to spend a few months each winter out in Kauai. And um, we, we dreamed this plan up. And, and instructor, my flight instructor here in Oregon, um, I've been teasing him for years. I said, yeah, yeah, Mark, we're going we're gonna to fly the float plane across the country. And Mark kind of got tired of me saying that. And um, 
so we're we're you know on winter away from the gloom and rain of Oregon and we we get over to Kauai and and you know it's like well you know what we should start planning this adventure and um so we're you go over to Honolulu and at the time there was um Pat and Maggie with Island Seaplanes in Honolulu and I I called Pat up and I said well I'd like to uh knock some of this rust off can you um you and and he had a flight instructor there Ken Bellows I said well can you guys um, give me some time in your 206 in, in Honolulu. So uh, he said, well, yes, of course. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so went went over to Honolulu and flew the 206 around a little bit there. And Pat got me, uh, got me back onto, onto floats. I just, you know, there's just so much about that. It uh, just has me salivating with uh, envy because uh, I love taking, uh, adventures of of any kind that are especially when they're off the beaten path but flying a seaplane in hawaii has to be like one of the ultimate things to do on on my bucket list and probably on many seaplane pilots bucket list and at that time there was only one commercial operator in hawaii and that was pat and uh interestingly enough there's a huge history with pat because he literally is the highest time seaplane pilot in the world and had the only commercial operation and, and uh, was, is, is a very colorful character to say the least. And for you get to get to fly with Pat and to do it in Hawaii uh, and, and especially just to brush up your seaplane skills. Uh, hats off to you, man. That's awesome. Well, it, it is. It's it's pretty good fun entry in the logbook, I must say. Um, daunting to fly around in the Honolulu airspace and uh, kind of fun. I mean, gosh, you're landing on the salt water right alongside of the all the other runways that are there, and you you can't you 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 just imagine yourself flying in on a Pan Am Clipper or something, and I don't know. It, so it was it was it was pretty good fun. But that was, um, we did that during the winter, expecting um, or hoping to get to fly across the country in, in May of that year. So we kind of had to get with the program. Yeah, yeah. So you started there, and then you came back to the mainland, uh, and you live in Oregon, but you also uh, reached out to one of our field directors who is also a not only a 172 owner at the time, but field director and uh, took some uh, additional training with Austin. And, and I think he really put you through the ringer, uh, uh, brushing up your skills and, and preparing you for the flight. Yes, that's right. So um, we called up Austin. He's one of the um, SPA field directors up in Renton, Washington at the time. And um, we had, um, oh gosh, logistics, but we got, everything put together, Northwest seaplanes up in uh, Seattle, put us back, put the 172 back on floats. Um, and let's see, Austin ran us through our paces, both Mark and I. And the objective, we, we wanted to get uh, comfortable in my airplane. Um, and so Austin ran us into, you know, uh, tight quarters, spot landing, um, glassy waters, the, the whole works. Um, confined operations and so forth. And so that was, um, we we really wanted to get comfortable with the airplane back on floats. 
uh, docking, ramping, uh, gosh, all of it. And uh, he, <laughs> Austin wasn't going to let us go until he was satisfied that we were ready. So, Well, yeah, I mean, I've heard kind of the long form of the story, uh-huh. and, and I know it was a very extensive uh, training and preparation process. And uh, I have to tell you, I, I appreciate the fact that you understood the magnitude of what it was going to take to to do a flight like this. And you took the time to prepare by brushing up on those skills, because quite honestly, to do the trip that you were anticipating and doing and trying to do without preparation, uh, just would have been, you know, quite honestly, hazardous and dangerous and, and irresponsible. And I think that a lot of the accidents we see, and of course, a big part of our mission is to prevent seaplane accidents and, and to promote safety and I'd like to encourage pilots when you're when you are thinking about doing an ambitious flight like this or one that's out of the norm of your normal flying or skill sets to take the time to go get this training and build the skills to be able to conduct the flight that that you want to do. And so, again, I'd like to take my hat off to you for uh, recognizing uh, what you needed to do to try to ensure success on such a flight. Yeah, and and Austin recognized that. He he knew that I was rusty, and he knew that Mark was a a low-time float plane pilot. Um, Not that I have gobs of hours, but um, he he wasn't going to let us go until we were ready. And uh, so you have to appreciate that. And then um, the other, of course, there's all the pearls of wisdom that people give you um, when you try and start off on this. And, and, to that, you know, Pat Maggie um, gave us his ideas of how you get across the Rockies. Um, Austin gave us his ideas about how to how to get across the Cascade Mountains. Um, and then I have to shout out to Tom Bass um, in the Water Flying Magazine because all of the different articles that that Tom put together, um, I had clipped and saved all those to put together an equipment list of all of the things that Tom felt would make a a journey kind of like this uh, possible and all of the things that keep you out of trouble and that you might need and how many lines you need and fenders and anchors and spikes for the sandy beach and ramping and just all of that. So um, I want to thank Tom for his, his guidance on that too. Yeah. And again, it was great that you recognized the resource was there. And, and again, Waterflight Magazine is one of the hallmarks of, of what we provide the membership um, as far as value and service to the community. And I always was so inspired and saw so much value in Tom's awesome. articles that I literally wanted to just compile them all and put them in a book uh, to publish because there was so much knowledge there and he was so meticulous in, you know, figuring out the minute details, the differences between one PFD and another PFD. And if you leave them inflated in the water for three days, you know, how, what's the air pressure loss and, and what's the actual buoyancy after three days versus one day. And I mean, he was just so incredibly meticulous about the way he compiled the information, but it, it it's a huge resource. And this is available to all the members of the Seaplane Pilots Association uh, on our 
uh, website, you can go in and go back through all the digital copies. We, we've literally archived all the uh, issues of Waterflying Magazine, and they're there on digital form. And I would encourage people to go back and, and read the Tom Bass articles. Uh, I got inspired to use the sand spikes uh, through Tom Bass's articles. Uh, SPA sells them now because I believe in them so much. And, and I have them everywhere I go. I travel with sand spikes because they are my go-to kind of beach tie-down method. Oh, yeah, I can tell you. they <laughs> And they work, too. I've got some stories about that. Um, <laughs> But yeah, also, also in the planning, you, you know, it, well, it was kind of a little bit comical. You know, you, you get all the different sectional charts, and I had some old WAC charts, and uh, you know, a triple A AAA map of the U.S. And you you take the water landing directory, and you start penciling in everything with a highlighter, and how you're going to do this and that, and then you you start calling down the list of the SPA field directors and and trying to pick their brain about you know, how would you get, how would you get from here to there? And where would you get gas if you were trying to do this? So the, the resources are there. It, it, oh, it just takes a lot of planning to, to try and put it all together. And the more you do this and the more you kind of go on these adventures and kind of get into this level of flying with seaplanes, the more, I think you can't help but realize uh, good, bad, or indifferent that it, there is so much tribal knowledge and this is one of the things that I'm kind of fighting to kind of uh, try to avoid even within the organization's leadership and, and my knowledge base is, you know, tribal knowledge, uh, man, it's all about having those people that have, have been there, that have done it, that live there and being able to reach out to them and have that networking ability. And, and again, that's one of the greatest goals we can do as an association is to try to provide that network and, and that, that tribal knowledge, those people that have it, because, uh, man, uh, this is such a small community and, and there is a lot of nuance and uh, knowledge that you just can't find unless you, you know, someone else or, or can reach out to someone else that has done it or been there. Yeah. Yeah. Critical, critical for this kind of a, a trip, I think. Um, and, and, I, I did. I gained some really keen insights as to what is not only a possible way to do it, but what might be the safest way to do it. And so my hat's off to all the guys that helped me um, do all this planning. So Yeah. So uh, you've done the planning now. You've gone through all of Tom Bass's articles. You've been training with Pat McGee's crowd uh, or group out in Hawaii. You've been training with Austin uh, in the Seattle area. Uh, you've got the airplane. You've got you've you've done everything you can do to prepare. Uh, now it's time to launch and and get this show on the road. What does day one look like? Day one, Seattle, um, low overcast, uh, yeah, not much wind, kind of dreary, a little on the chilly side, not bad, um, and. We tell Austin what we're going to do, and Austin says, "Oh no, I wouldn't go that way. I'd go, I'd go this way through the Cascade Mountains." He says, "Oh yeah, that that pass, that pass is always clear. It can be nasty here in in Seattle, but that pass is always VFR." So yeah, okay, okay. 
<laughs> so we take off and we get up to where he says we should cut through the Cascade Mountains and it's fogged in. Oh, great. What do we do? So, I mean, you know, we could we could have turned back and, and we, we called ahead. We knew it was severe, clear on the other side of the Cascades. And so Mark and I say, you know, and here's the beauty of two pilots is Mark's Mark's running the radio and he's get get a hold of Seattle Center and he says, here's what we want to do. And uh, they say, well, okay, stand by. And so we circle, 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 and they give us a clearance. And uh, so we tell them now, uh, bear with us because we're a 172 float plane and it's going to take us a little bit of time to get up to altitude. <laughs> so they kind of went whatever. And, and sure enough, made it across the Cascades and it was just a gorgeous flight from there to Spokane. So that's how our trip started. We we could have said forget it, we'll go another day, but we had the tools, we had the we had the time, we had two pilots and we were ready to go. So And those we went. those those big rocks are pretty intimidating uh to start the trip. I mean that's uh that's a big first day, a big first leg, actually, as far as uh here I am in an airplane with not a lot of climb performance on straight floats and I'm looking at some big terrain between me and the other side. Yeah, it's a, and you know, flying around the Northwest, you kind of know that, but then all of a sudden, here you are in a float plane, and, and it's just like, oh. <laughs> uh, but yeah, worked out, worked out well. So, first, and, uh, uh, so off we went. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. first fuel stop, I think, was Idaho. Uh, first fuel stop, Brooks, uh, Coeur d'Alene. Yeah. Um, and uh, great, great spot. Um, but let's think it was Memorial day and it was lovely, warm, uh, not much wind. And so we're, we come across uh, Coeur d'Alene and we're looking at the lake and there's boats going this way and people out, uh, sailboats and motorboats and jet skis and the whole thing. And we go, Oh boy. So we circle around a couple times. We call, call into the seaplane base. They said, yeah, yeah, no problem. But we're really doing uh, bang up business with our scenic flights. We we'd rather have you ramp today than uh, use the dock. Hmm. Okay. So we we land uneventfully and putter up and uh, here we go up onto the ramp. And the the flight uh, attendant there is going to fuel us up. He goes, "Man, you guys did a really good job on that ramp. Most people don't do that well." So. Uh, Austin, thanks again. <laughs> you had us ready. Uh, Austin is awesome, and uh, uh, it's always great. And I'm glad he did such a good job. And uh, obviously, you, you were the beneficiary of it. So, uh, but uh, you know, so taking off out of Brooks can be uh, an adventure on its own in a normal day in a 172 heavy for a cross country, uh, relatively hot relatively calm that that's a whole nother creature exactly and this is um you know kind of where where i'm at in oregon we're kind of sea level flyers right um but this is our first time on a float plane at 20 what's cord lane 2100 feet and uh yep we're heavy and so now we're experiencing density altitude firsthand um, so it takes a little while to get off the water, 
Um, <laughs> glad we picked a big lake. 172 will uh, remind you of uh, where the step really is. Yes, that's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you and I uh, actually had a chance to uh, experience some density altitude issues. Uh, it was a little bit lower. Uh, I think the temperature, it might have been a little bit cooler than what it was there at Brooks uh, on that day, but... Uh, even in the Super Cub, I was heavy, and uh, I was in the Super Cub. You were in the 172. We were in Maine. Uh, out at, where were we? Um, one of the seaplane bases. And Jesus Place. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Katahdin Air. Katahdin uh, Air, yeah, out, out of Out of And it was, uh, we were doing the poker run uh, at the Greenville International Fly-In this year. And I have to tell you, even at 1,500 feet, uh, the Super Cub Heavy uh, is a different airplane, especially on Amphibs, than it is uh, down here in Florida at 140 feet uh, field elevation or lake elevation here. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you know, the uh, density altitude issue is real, and uh, it it really impacts the performance dramatically. And... Uh, uh, so that was your first experience, and I'm sure there were more, which we'll get to with that. Well, exactly. And, and to that, I have to, like, here we go, back to Pat Maggie. And, and Pat had said, you know, you're going to have density altitude issues that you're not used to. And he said, in your planning, pick big lakes, pick lots of big water, so that if you have an issue, it's not a problem. And um, sure enough. Well, throughout the trip, uh, we were we were hot and calm and high. So uh, density altitude, something to pay attention to. So along the many considerations that you had for this, not only are you flying a straight flow plane, uh, not only are you flying against or across some relatively tall and forbidding uh, uh, geography uh, and terrain, uh, but... Uh, you also had to choose your landing sites. Not only do they have fuel or access to the fuel, uh, but is the lake big enough? Because you can always get in, but not necessarily get out. Exactly. And, and um, so that, that uh, second leg of the first day was when we started up into the Rockies from Coeur d'Alene. And Pat had given us a route up through uh, a lake, around Lake Ponderell, and then you come up through Thompson's Falls and so forth. And um, so our the end of the day, we ended up at Sealy Lake, which is just a fabulous uh, seaplane base right at the top of the continent. Um, critical stop um, to get up and over um, with the weather that you could see in the Rockies, um, the altitude, the, the weather, the heat. Um, density altitude issues um, and a, a critical fuel stop and for us a critical first night stay so that was a great place Sealy Lake Montana and I have not been there yet I look forward to uh, getting there I've done some flying around Montana but I don't believe I have been uh, to Lindy's there uh, but I understand from you that uh after a hard day's flying, there's a pretty good place to catch a, a bite. And, and some of those bites that you catch after a long day like that are, are some of the most rewarding ones. 
Some of the best, yes. Lindy, Lindy's, uh, Lindy's Landing uh, Steakhouse is just, <laughs> boy, you better go hungry because they they feed you a plateful. I'll tell you, <laughs> what a great place. Again, all the little gems in 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 the rough that you find, uh, uh, you know, uh, doing an adventure like this and and having a pretty intimidating or challenging day. Uh, just getting started on a major adventure and then, uh, you know, quite honestly to have a good meal and it might be a lot better in, in your mind's eye or, uh, than it is in reality sometimes because you're just so happy to sit down and, and have a friendly place and a big meal and a nice meal. Well, exactly. And uh, after kind of a, you know, here we go on an adventure like this and you're, you know, I got to admit, you're a little nervous as to whether this is all going to work out. So the first day was perfect day. Oh, that's awesome. And to finish it off with a good dinner. So I think this is a good place to uh, take a break uh, and leave people with baited anticipation. Uh, there are several days to come. Uh, you have only made it... Uh, several hundred miles across the country at, at this point, what, like 500 miles or something uh, at Sealy? How far was that? Well, I look at it more as uh, we crossed the Cascade Range, uh, made it across Washington, and now we're up in the middle of the Rockies. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm going to look at it that way, not on a mileage, but just as the accomplishment of getting that far, so... Yeah, and this is a conversation we had before we kind of wrap it up here for the for this episode is that uh, each day, I think what was facing you was a different type of, of uh, terrain, a different type of challenges as you go across the country. Uh, the country changes, the, the spacing of the lakes, the size of the water, the type of water. Is it a river? Or is it a lake? Do you have mountains? Uh, you know, are you going more downhill or are you climbing back up on the other side on the East Coast? So I think every day you you have a different kind of flying challenges that you're presented with. Every day is different. Exactly. Um, I think the, the key to the to the planning and the execution is you, you look at the enormity of this country. And, and as my uh, buddy, Mark Strobel says, you know, how, how do you, how are you going to eat the elephant? Well, you eat the elephant one bite at a time. And, and really the whole adventure boils down to just a series of cross country flights and uh, to look at it that way and, and plan for the contingencies and plan for the fuel stops and rest stops and uh, the what can go wrong sort of scenarios and uh, take it one day at a time. And again, so you're not only planning for the next week of your journey, but I think there's a, a real healthy attitude and a way to look at it as, as you're saying, where, you know, just like when you're doing your, your private pilot license, uh, it's a cross country. I'm going on a long cross country and I've got to make it to the next fuel stop um, that's going to be, uh, you know, anywhere from two and a half to three and a half hour flight in most cases. And it's a cross country. And then, you know, then there's the next leg of, of the cross country or the next flight. If you want to make that its own cross country and just break it down like that, 
um, and just get to the next, you know, how do we get to the next stop? What does it take as far as planning, uh, calling ahead for fuel, making sure someone's there, what are the conditions, and just taking it uh, step by step. So uh, I think that's a huge amount of wisdom for someone to take away from from your experience with this. Yeah, step step by step. Um, and <laughs> like all of us GA pilot types is to expect that if there's a weather or something goes wrong, it's like you, you don't try and lock yourself into a timetable. Um, and that would be just a disappointment. And don't try and push something if it's not going to work. Just um, use your plan B and use your plan C, I guess. That's the, that's the kind of the way we tried to figure out each of our day's events. And having the discipline to make that go or no-go decision or uh, to, to not uh, – I hate to say it, bust your standards or your acceptable risk tolerances, things like that. And uh, again, I experienced a lot of that on, on my last epic journey, you know, doing this 5,000 mile plus uh, trip around the United States across 25 states. And, and again, there are times when you feel those artificial pressures to get there uh, or to beat the weather or to, to get to that next fuel stop, even though the conditions may not be correct to do that. And, um, you know, I ended up developing a whole new safety seminar just out of the psychology of confirmation bias and and making sure that, you know, you set your personal standards for a reason and, and you need to stick to them because if, if you, if you override your personal standards or limits, uh, it doesn't do any good to have them in the first place. Right. Right. Good so, point. Good point. So uh, I would like to thank uh, all of you in the audience for listening to today's episode. It is just literally a tease uh, for what's to come in the second part of Dave's journey that we're going to talk about in the very next episode of uh, Water Flying. And so uh, please uh, tune in to part two of Dave Wellman exploring the Pacific, the, the, the potential of flying a straight float airplane from the Pacific to the Atlantic, crossing the United States in a straight float 172. Um, we hope you tune into it and we'll pick up where we're leaving off right now. And you can join Dave's uh, account of this journey. Uh, I find it very inspirational and full of educational tidbits. Uh, that really are best learned by taking seaplanes out like he did into the environment where they belong and doing these trips that are so rewarding, educational, and skill-building as a pilot. And uh, also, I'd like to encourage you to share this podcast with your friends. Uh, If you have any inkling that they'll enjoy a show like this, talking about seaplanes, that they may be interested in aviation uh, or in particular seaplanes, we as seaplane pilots are a pretty endangered species. We've lost over 30% of the seaplane pilot population in the last 20 years, and as we continue to age as pilots, and and Dave, you and I are both uh, in the plus 50 range, uh, so we're part of the problem. Uh, we need to make sure that we're fostering uh, the next generation of seaplane pilots to not only uh, know that these uh, possibilities exist, 
but we need them in, to enjoy the great freedoms that we do as seaplane pilots and inspire them uh, to join our ranks. So, uh, Dave, uh, I love talking to you. I, I love hearing the stories. I love uh, learning the wisdom that you learn along the way. And it's really important that we communicate that and uh, pass that on in episode two. So thank you for uh, joining us today. What that sounds good, Steve. You you've left me hanging. Well, you've left us all hanging at the top <laughs> of the Rocky Mountains at Sealy Lake, and uh, so let's pick up from there on our next podcast. Do you make it? Is the question. Are you successful? Does he stop short? <laughs> <laughs> what are the dramas that ensue between here and there? If he makes it. <laughs> So, turn around, turn around, go back, go back. <laughs> Something tells me you didn't turn back, but we'll leave it at that. So, hey, uh, we hope you've enjoyed this issue or, or this episode of Water Flying. We enjoy doing it. Uh, it is for you, and it is just uh, not only for an enjoyment, uh, but also to hopefully learn something along the way. And, uh, uh, Dave, thank you for taking time uh, out of your schedule to be with us today. And we will look forward to uh, joining him on our very next episode, like I said, of Water Flying. So tune in for part two. And until then, fly safe and fly often, my friends. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show, I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Water Flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org, join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.